figure out what it was. And then Bob also had it sent out for an attempt at genetic analysis to see if he could confirm that it was that it was blood, and it came back inconclusive. So we never really had certainty about it. Uh, we just know that it appeared after house blessings at least twice that I recall. This case was a long time ago, um, but at least twice it appeared, and you know, it'd be wiped off the walls, and then sometimes it would appear again after another house blessing. This this case, there was many iterations. This wasn't just one visit. There was a good priest doing masses in that house for years before we got involved. Um, so you know, th there was a lot of work that went on with this case. And so, you in fact. Uh you know, being an expert in this field, you would in fact say, would say that without a doubt, there was demonic preternatural activity in this house, correct? I would say so. Um, it's one of the few places where I've personally seen disembodied black shadows sliding along floors or walls that didn't have a source. I couldn't debunk them. I watched them square on, not out of the corner of my eye. Um, there was noises and sounds. There was disembodied odors that were striking and would be like in a column of air as if a person, and when it would move, it wouldn't linger behind it. You could you could find it standing wherever it was by the scent it gave off, which was a typical demonic scent. And then when it disappeared, like at a snap of fingers, it was gone and there was no trace of it. We also had the entire house filled with the scent of roses instantaneously continue for about three or four minutes. We ran around looking for a source of it or an explanation or an open window that a waft of air had come in or anything. Couldn't find anything. It was actually in the winter. Everything was closed up. And as fast as it came and a snap of fingers, it was gone. So I saw a number of things personally that I know that there was something unusual going on there. Um, and talking with the family and knowing the family fairly well and hearing their stories and are looking back on Catholics it. Hmm? Adam, are they practicing Catholics? Um, they were they were Protestant when this started. Bob converted to Catholicism when he saw that the Catholic approaches were helping and working, and it made such an impression on him that the holy water was real and had an effect on it, uh, that the Catholic prayers seemed to be effective versus what he was doing before, and, and Protestant ministers had tried to help him. Uh, wasn't resolving it. And what, what ultimately ended the case was was a more formal house exorcism that was done by a very prominent exorcist who's now passed on, uh, not from Pittsburgh, but more on a national level, had come in. And uh, that's what finally broke the case and, and brought it to a close. What did he do? Did he, did he do Chapter 3, the, the, the long-form St. Michael? Yep. Mm -hmm. and, that's what, and he had a mandate, obviously, right? Yeah. What happens, yeah, so, Adam, what happens when there's a lot of good priests that have been trained, like say, for example, they've been trained at the Pope Leo XIII and maybe even in, in Rome, and they go back to their diocese and they don't get a mandate from the bishop, but they've been trained. I know of cases where lay people that work with these exorcists that at times, again, when they do have a case of possession, full possession, even though they've been trained as exorcists, at uh, you know Rome or or at the Pope Leo the Thirteenth Institute, uh, the demon will tell them if it's full possession. Say you don't have a mandate, you don't have authority by the bishop. They know it, even though the person is fully trained. And so, uh, do you know that to be the case also? I, I've personally seen that multiple times. 
So the bishop has to approve each exorcism. They, they will rarely give blanket permission to an exorcist and say, use your judgment, I give you permission, I trust you. If it's real, just deal with it. But usually it's case by case. And I've seen at least three times where we're diagnosing the case, we're trying to figure it out, which involves rigorous outside analysis by a medical doctor, psychiatry. You want to rule out that it could be mental illness or anything. The church is very strict on that. But we're looking for the spiritual signs of possession. And in the midst of it, as we're praying and looking for that, we're not using the exorcism right yet, yet, because we can't. The, the exorcist will, as it's manifesting, may say something, and the demon will, will say just what you said. It'll say, you don't have any authority over me. I'm not listening to you. I'm not going to do anything. And sometimes we'll have a priest visiting from another diocese with permission to be there, permission from their bishop, permission from ours to sit in just to observe and learn. And the demon will be very interested in that priest at the beginning of the exorcism. We'll often turn to them and say, basically, who are you? You know, it's an ongoing, full-blown exorcism. It's approved, but this guy's here without authority. He's just there to observe. And the demon will literally get up physically in his face and say, well, these I know, but who are you? What do you think you're doing here? So they'll call you on that. And I've also seen it where <clears throat> our exorcist, the demon will say, you don't have a mandate. You don't have authority from the bishop. You can't do anything. He'll step in the hall, call Bishop on his cell phone and say, Bishop, I've got a real situation. Here's the signs. Do you give me permission to use the exorcism? He says, yes, I give you permission. He walks back in the room and now the demon's over in the corner. The possessed person's over in the corner trying to get away from the priest. So it, the whole situation completely changes once the bishop's authority is in place. But yeah, they love calling us on that because they're, they're like lawyers, not picking on lawyers. <laughs> Out of here, somebody just uh, on on social media just asked a question. Hey, I know, I know, we don't, we're not picking on Protestants here, but there is a famous Protestant. Uh, in fact, he's out here in my neck of the woods. Maybe I should go and and, uh, and visit him one day and, and chat with him. His name is Bob Larson. He's a he's a Southern Baptist. He's a and he's very popular. In, uh, you know, he calls himself a, a Baptist exorcist and stuff. And in fact, I, I think where he got a lot of traction is that he went and uh, him and his wife went to go visit Father Gabriel Amorth. And uh, I think, and he took a picture of it and that he, that's what he puts on his website. And so that's why he's got some gravitas in the Protestant world. He got right. in his knee and uh, I guess Father Gabriel Amorth said something kind of like, God bless you and your wife and your marriage and stuff. So he took that picture and that little photo op and the fact that Father Amorth said, God bless you and your wife and your marriage. And he just ran with it, and he's like, you know, he's like the, um, you know, he's like the, the the Father James Labar for the Protestants these days. You know, he's like the Monsignor Essa for Protestants. And so, when he asked me, "Hey, does Bob Larson uh, does he have authority to drive out demons?" I would well, just say once again, everything we answered the question right here uh, through through his baptism. I mean, obviously, uh, a Baptist baptism. He shares. He shares somewhat in, in the mystical body of Christ, as Pope Pius XII says. But again, uh, I do know, and I, I'm not picking on him. I, I, I know he's also been divorced. He lost his marriage. And it's again, there's probably because of the, the retaliation that, that came against him, because he is doing this consistently, and he's not protected by a Catholic bishop. 
he doesn't have the mandate through the apostolic line. He just has kind of the good sensibilities. He's probably a prayerful man, who knows? And uh, he probably has his heart in the right place. But he's, in my opinion, and you correct me if I'm wrong, he's out of his lane of authority. What say you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, you know, I think that Bob Larson in the early days, and I think, I think in the early days for sure he had good intentions. And I heard some radio interviews, clips of him, back when he was more of just a radio guy. <clears throat> and a possessed person had called in and the demon manifested on the phone with him live on the air. And I've had possessed people call me and the demon take over and start talking. So I know, and I've been at lots of exorcisms, but I know when they're playing their games and trying to be scary and dramatic. And I listen to that, and I'm confident that that was a real demonic encounter uh, over the phone on this radio show. And he handled it really well. Now, this was a long time ago, probably in the 90s. It was I think that, back with Bob Larson. Yeah. 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 And, but I think that the problem now is number one, the money. So, and and forgive me, but I can't give you the, the scripture, but freely have you been given, freely shall you give. You know, there's many references to don't let money be involved. Don't take money with you. Just trust in God and, and do your work. Um, so he's taking a lot of money for this, and he's been caught asking people for stocks and bonds and cash and and charging a lot of money. So that's a big red flag. We don't ever take any money, even donations of any kind. It's really bad to mix profit with opposing the devil. I'm not picking on him. I'm just saying that's a point of concern from a Christian perspective. Um, The other thing that I'm just curious about, I'm not saying that it's not right, but I'm, I'm really really confused by the fact that every exorcism that he records and puts out on the internet is all about 10 minutes long from beginning to end. They all fit neatly within a YouTube video time frame of about just the right number of minutes. They all have the same beginning, middle and end. Um, And that's not how we see exorcisms work, either in the literature from the last hundreds of years that that they're recorded or in what we see in the hundreds of exorcisms that we do. These are, you know, multi-hour prayer sessions. Um, And the typical case is six months to two years of sessions to get all the layers of the demonic out. So if it was 10 minutes, I'm confused. That's the kind way to say it. Adam, I think you you, you analyze it like a good detective. Uh, Yeah, 10 minutes, they all fit on YouTube. They're all successful. Some fishy in Denmark. We'll be right back. Talk with Adam Fly about uh, the Brownsville Road. Uh, the house. human spirit hauntings are basically their attempts to signal us that they need prayer. 
And as we were closing last time, we explored how some cases are complicated and it's not completely clear what's going on in the case. And sometimes through interacting with the case, maybe in an inappropriate way, we can invite these problems into our own lives. In this segment, we're going to talk about demonic infestation. And remember, that is when the demons have gained the legal spiritual rights to manifest in an extraordinary way in a place, generally through the consent of the person who has authority over that place. Now, I'd like to explore one case in depth because that case has gone on to be written up as a book by the homeowner and a professional author that assisted them and is likely to be made into a movie at some point in the future. And sometimes people are interested to hear, uh, you know, a perspective on what really went on in a case versus what ends up being made in Hollywood, which is often an exaggeration, of course. So this case is also important to me because it really represented the first formal church case that I worked on. So this was quite a few years ago. This was a house case, and I can use their names because they've written it up in the book and then gone on to uh, speak publicly about it. So the family name is Cranmer, and Bob Cranmer was a politician in our city of Pittsburgh for many years. He was also in the military, and he's a very solid, um, grounded person. Now, Basically, the story with that case, to give you the backstory before I got involved, Bob was drawn to the house his whole life. Since he was a little child, he used to stare at it and come up to the house. He always felt some connection with it. Well, it turned out that as Bob's life went on and he eventually had the means as an adult, he bought the house when it became available. Now, there was some hints, he says, that there was something wrong because when he bought it after it was purchased, uh, and he moved into the neighborhood. A number of the neighbors mentioned to him, oh, you bought that house. And everybody knew that it was supposedly haunted. He didn't really have uh, anything going on for a while, in fact, a number of years. And it started small. And a lot of demonic infestations do start small. They start with some minor manifestation that you could dismiss or explain away. Uh, in this case, it was the pull chain of a light in the closet underneath the staircase. So in, this is an old uh, 1800s kind of middle-of-the-road mansion in Pittsburgh. So this was probably somebody who was higher up in the steel mills. And uh, it's a large house with a staircase that, that rotates around. So within that large wooden staircase that kind of came around, there was an empty space that there was a closet and then dead space there uh, that was completely enclosed. And it started in this closet started in the morning, he would go to get his coat, and the pull chain for the light would be tightly wrapped around or tied around the light fixture. And he thought nothing of it and thought kids were playing or just it flopped that way or what whatnot. Over time, things got more and more dramatic. Then he started taking string and tied uh, the chain down so it couldn't move just to rule out that somebody was, was, was moving it. And they come and find the string broken and tied. And eventually he thought it was a little odd and some other small things were happening in the house and so he took a rosary and he wrapped a rosary around the fixture there. Almost immediately when he checked it and came home the next day, the crucifix of the rosary looked like somebody had put it in their mouth and bit down on it and, and, and chewed on it hard enough to deform the metal. So it was kind of bent and deformed as if something had chewed on it. Um, then he 
tried that a few times. I think the rosary would be broken in some cases. Then the manifestation started spreading through the house. They, they started getting worse. The very typical things in demonic infestations were happening in this case. And the hallmarks are horrific odors with no source. That's the most common hallmark of a disembodied demon. A demon that's manifesting in an extraordinary way. It's not possessing a person, but it's kind of floating around. So you had the really bad odors. And these are packets of air that move. It's not like if you were to take a cigarette or a or incense and move it past somebody, there would be a lingering smell behind. This is as if a packet of air that has its own odor moves and it leaves no lingering behind it. So you can follow these through smell, but where they're not, there's absolutely no odor. Now, these odors vary quite a bit from case to case, uh, but everybody describes them kind of in a similar way, that it's very horrible, it usually involves kind of a scent of death or rotting, uh, and mixed with other smells. So it's never just one smell. There can be a sulfurous smell, a rotting smell, um, human waste, these type of things. The most vile combination of the worst things you've ever smelled in your life. Put them together and that's this. So these packets of air were appearing. Uh, the typical scratches, the three scratches in, in lines, thin lines, were appearing on Bob. He would wake up with them. Um, this was one of the rare cases where uh, blood started appearing in the house. So at the point where they started having the house blessed because things were getting bad enough that they were reaching out for various spiritual remedies uh, because the kids were being bothered and all this, and it's a very long story, but it was affecting the whole family. After the house blessings, and, and in part of a Catholic house blessing that's thorough, you go through with holy water and, and you spatter all the walls with holy water and some of the floors as part of the blessing. Well, the next day after each time, there was what looked like spatters of blood in the places where the holy water had gone. Uh, Bob actually took samples of this with Q-tips and he had a connection to an architectural firm that did analysis for samples from houses that have various issues to figure out what it is, you know, molds or chemical spills, this type of thing. He actually sent that in for analysis. Um, my recollection is that it came back organic, but of an unknown, uh, basically, origin. They couldn't figure out what it was, but they knew it was organic. This was appearing on the walls. Um, this increased and started appearing in the light fixtures and running down the light fixtures. They would find it dried on there in the mornings. And then something interesting happened. One morning, they came out, and there was a pool of fluid on the floor. Uh, fairly large, and his wife, and they had had a number of kids, knew what this odor is, and the odor is very distinct, and that is amniotic fluid, the fluid from the womb. And there was a pool of this on the floor, and it looked just like amniotic fluid, and it smelled just like it. And that was the first clue, and things escalated and escalated. Uh, there was an, a number of experiences that were, that were quite negative that the kids went through. Objects started being thrown in the house hard enough to shatter and break. Um, and then the spiritual intervention started increasing. And that, and that was leading towards, over the years, uh, leading towards when I was called into the case. So by the time I was called by the church, they had been working on this for, I believe, at least seven years, if not more. Many, many masses were said in the house, many, uh, many times a week for years. 
A lot of work was done, a lot of blessings, not much was really helping. And it came to a point where the church wanted a fresh take on the case. The diocese wanted a fresh take on the case. And I had some connection with this work um, through a group that I was a staff advisor for at Penn State. And that was more of uh, a group that was just interested in whether this paranormal stuff was, was normal. It was essentially a paranormal investigation group. But this was way back in the early days before it had become popular. And I was curious in grad school whether any of these complaints were real or just artifacts of the brain. So I had become an advisor to this group so I could clinically interview the people with these complaints. So in that context, I was called in to do psyche valves essentially on the family because I was trained as a clinician as part of graduate school. So I came in really to more interview Bob and his family. But through that, I personally had direct experiences uh, it was, to me, it was very surprising. I had seen somebody go into a possession state, oddly enough, only a few weeks before going on this case for the first time. Um, and that was the first time that I was really exposed to the demonic in a direct way. But this case was the first time that I saw manifestations uh, myself. So what I experienced when, when I came through the house for the first time and, and spent a weekend there with Bob and interviewed everybody... I saw black shadows sliding along the floors and, and walls, which were like maybe a blob about that big with no source. There was no object creating the shadow. It would move and slide and then slide up walls on its own, apparently, of its own volition. Uh, I experienced the column of very bad odor of air that would move, and it would move about as fast as a person walking. And you could track it by its odor, very distinct. Early on in that first weekend, and everybody in the house experienced this, spontaneously the entire house filled with the smell of roses, of flowers. Nothing in particular prompted it. We were discussing the case and what was going on, and suddenly like that, the entire house, you could smell flowers everywhere, as if you had had dozens of dozens of flowers in every room. We ran through the house looking for a source of it, looking for an explanation. This was wintertime. It was January, I believe, so all the windows and doors were closed. It's not like something wafted in. Um, in the course of running through the house trying to figure this out, because I had never experienced it before, suddenly, as quickly as it came, about two minutes later, it was gone, and you couldn't find a trace of it anywhere. Um, there was a number of things that I experienced in that house and had direct experience, which for me was important because more as a brain researcher, which is what I was involved in at the time, and as a clinician, um, I was looking for natural explanations of things. And I wanted to be sure that this wasn't just artificial experiences. That's important to note here that what I was experiencing, everybody else was too. So it's one thing if somebody sees a shadow, but they're the only one that sees it, you could rule that out and say, you know, that was a hallucination, or you're tricking yourself, or or any kind of explanation like that. Um, but everybody was having the same experiences with the bad odors, with the positive odors of roses, uh, seeing the shadows. One interesting thing that was a little dramatic to share about that case, and this could have been coincidence, uh, but we took a break from the case at one point and took a walk. I just wanted to clear my head and get away from the house because it was feeling pretty oppressive got a couple blocks away, and it was very cold in winter, 
and there was a lightning strike, and all of the power seemed to go out in that part of the city of Pittsburgh, except the block that we were standing on. So there was a thunderous crash, and suddenly everything was dark as far as we could see, except the little pocket of light that we were standing in, which could have been nothing, but when you're involved in these cases, um, things like that happen, and, and you, you wonder. So some things are obviously uh, some type of preternatural manifestation. Some things just make you wonder. So the clue to get back to the amniotic fluid, as the research was done on the house and the history of the house, it doesn't seem conclusive, but it may be that there was a doctor, an OBGYN, who had an office a few blocks down the street. Bob uncovered through a professional historian that he hired some evidence, not conclusive, that he may have been doing off-the-books abortions for more affluent clientele in this house and renting part of the house that him and a nurse were doing this work. Now, that may or may not have happened. If it had happened, maybe that had contributed to things. But possibly more interesting, remember the staircase, the curved wooden staircase I mentioned at the beginning. Well, there was a strong discernment or a spiritual sense that something important was under that staircase in the dead space where it was sealed. There was no door or way to get to it, and the way the staircase was built, it created a hollow underneath it just by the way the building was constructed. So I convinced Bob at one point that I thought something was under there. I just felt strongly about it. Other people uh, had felt strongly about that too. So he got a circular saw and tore the wall down in the back of the closet. Now inside was a lot of leftover coal dust, I guess, from over the decades back in the day when they used to use a coal-fired furnace in the house. There's a few toys that his kids had lost when they were little that, like Legos and other things that were big enough that there was no way to get into that space because that space was completely sealed. You might have gotten a playing card slipped through uh, slats in the wood where the wood joined in the flooring perhaps where the house had expanded and contracted, but we couldn't find any large space for the larger little toys that we found. But most interestingly, we found a piece of paper folded up, very old, covered in, in soot in the corner. Uh, Bob still has to this day. And we opened it carefully because it was very brittle. And on the one side was a drawing, apparently maybe of the street. It was a very rough drawing of the house and a sunset. And on the other side was a fairly disturbing drawing of kind of what looked like half-human, half-animal people looking at each other, and the family name written on there. And the family name was Malak, M-A-L-A-C-K. Now, those of you that know the Old Testament may recognize that as sounding pretty close to an Old Testament figure named Malak, which was a deity or god, quote-unquote, that was worshipped by some of the tribes that the Jews came across. Moloch was associated with child sacrifice. So whether that meant anything or whether there was some connection, we don't know. Historically, we're pretty sure that a number of families went to ruin in that house. Uh, four or five families had their fortunes destroyed and kind of left the house in tatters and, and ruin. There was a lot of death in that house, a lot of misfortune, uh, a lot of sadness. So that case had been dragging on for years, and Bob talks about it openly now, 
and of course a lot of people asked, why didn't you just leave? And he felt that God wanted him there and that it was his fight and he wasn't going to give up his home to this thing. Now in the end, it did end. Uh, the then most senior exorcist in the United States who's now passed on came and led the exorcism prayers on the house, the minor exorcism. And in the end, the case did finally end and the house has been peaceful for a number of years now. But that's an example of kind of a classic demonic infestation. Now let's discuss the treatment of demonic infestation. The treatment is really dependent on the cause or the way the case started. Now if you move into a home or an apartment and there's a pre-existing problem there that you didn't do anything to cause, it may have been caused by the previous owner or somebody with authority over the building. What is often necessary is at least a thorough house blessing and prayer in that place and bringing sacramentals into that place. Blessed crucifixes, blessed salt, uh, blessed water, these types of things, sacramentals from the church. Sometimes that's enough. Uh, sometimes it's also necessary to have a home exorcism or a house exorcism. This is sometimes called the minor exorcism. It's not the same as a solemn exorcism of a person. It's basically, in the old rite, the appendix of the solemn exorcism is a brief exorcism for places or objects. So in some cases, the priest will do that in addition to the blessing and bringing sacramentals and prayer into the home. Now, sometimes a demonic infestation is related to a particular object that's in the home. Now, there are cases where you might acquire an object or somebody may give you an object that has a spirit attached to it. Now, it's important to understand that items cannot be possessed, but items can have a spirit attached to them. Think about how we bless objects within the Catholic Church. We may bless a crucifix or have a statue blessed or have holy water blessed. What are we doing there? We're asking for some aspect of God's spirit to be connected with that, for it to be made holy. The opposite can also happen where within dark occult rituals or Satanism of various types, people will do a ritual and ask a demonic spirit to attach to an object. If that object is then brought into a home with the consent of the person with authority over that home, that spirit has a limited right or license to be active in that place. So these types of cases, we need to remove the object that came into the home that may have a spirit, bad spirit attached to it. Now that object could just be exercised in some cases. If the object has um, an obvious kind of occult or negative aspect to it, it might be good to remove it just because of the association psychologically that it might inspire in the person. Um, so it kind of depends again on what you're dealing with. But if it's activity that came from the previous owner's activities, blessing, exorcism, bring in prayer and sacramentals, get your life in order. If there's an object in the home that either you acquired or somebody gave in, gave to you or somebody left in the home, you want to have that removed. Uh, there's no um, validity to these superstitions about burning things or burying them or putting them in a stream or any of these ideas. Uh, if it's a cursed object, if it has an evil spirit attached to it, it's good if the priest does a minor exorcism over it so that that spiritual um, connection is broken and then just throw the object away. If it's 
overtly evil and, and kind of a nasty object, you could destroy it, that's fine, just so it doesn't, you know, inspire negative thoughts and feelings in other people. But generally, once it's exercised, you don't have to worry about it. So, this is just an overview of the treatment of demonic infestation. Again, these cases are complicated, they're not always straightforward, and really it's best to have a priest that has had some training or experience in this area to help you. Don't take this work lightly, and don't take getting involved in this work lightly. You should have a spiritual director. You should be looking at your life and trying to improve your spiritual life and your behavior when you're involved in this, because when you push against hell directly, you're consenting to a certain amount of struggle back. Now, one final uh, example, and in a sense, warning uh, about that along these lines. When I started this work, I was told very early on by a priest who's become probably my best friend, uh, an exorcist, do you, have any, do you have a wife, do you have kids, do you have pets? And was told you basically cannot have a wife, children, or pets if you're going to be involved in this. I didn't, I kind of understood why I imagined it was because the demons may try to take revenge on somebody else that's close to you if that person is vulnerable and you're not. So we have a lot of grace and protection from God when we're involved in this work if we're called into it by God as a ministry. Now the priest has a lot of protection naturally on their own. The laity, there really should be evidence that you're genuinely called into this so the protection comes with it. What happened was my father was very vulnerable spiritually in the sense that he was baptized but his life, he hadn't got himself squared away spiritually at all. And he's recently passed on. And I'm confident from conversations with him that he would want to share this if it would be helpful with people. My father uh, was staying at his, his house alone in Philadelphia. Uh, he was sleeping. He woke up standing at the top of his stairs, came to standing there, not knowing how he got there. And the next moment, he was in the air. And he was thrown down his stairs so hard that he didn't touch the stairs. He landed at the bottom on the floor and broke his neck. He recovered, and tremendous good fruit came from that. He got his spiritual life in order. He confessed all of his sins. He then formed a, a close personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And then recently, a couple years after that, he passed on, and I was being able to be with him when he died. And it was a good death, and a lot of good came from that. It was a wake-up call for him, but it was a very sobering moment for me. And in a sense, that's my third example of a demonic infestation. Demons in a place manifesting in a very powerful way. You might call that oppression because it was more personal, but I think it follows the example of my own home as a note of warning for the viewers that with this work, if you're a priest, great. You do it because your bishop tells you to. But if you're a lay person, or if you're in a paranormal investigating group, or you're somebody that just wants to do this because you think it's interesting or cool or it's going to make you feel special, please don't. This can be deadly serious. 
You need to be called into this by God, and there should be evidence of that through special efficacy, special protection, and the discernment of priests and ideally your bishop. It's a very rare thing. And now that 10 years have gone by, and we've trained hundreds of priests in this country, there's probably no longer a need for people like me where there was a gap where we didn't have many priests trained in this area. And so there was, God allowed me to be used to help learn some things and help train some priests. But now, and you know, God willing, we'll have plenty of priests trained in this area and there won't be a need for that. So pray for us, pray for your priests in particular, but please do not mess around with this ministry lightly. It can be very serious. That being said, God's in charge of everything. And praise God and praise Jesus Christ. And God bless you.